Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Tian Xiaofei. Uh, I'm professor of Chinese literature at uh, Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations at Harvard. Um, it is my honor and pleasure uh, to chair this panel on archival and private collection um, this afternoon. And uh, before I introduce uh, our panelists, I would like to just very briefly introduce the background of this panel. Um, so the background of the panel is a special exhibition, which is being held upstairs. And uh, we welcome everybody to go upstairs after the panel to um, take a look at the uh, exhibition. So this exhibition is of a selection of treasured items from the collection of the Zha Library, Zha Shuguan, and from Harvard Yanjing Library. So my colleague, uh, Wilt Idema, and I uh, worked with the librarians of the Zha Library and Harvard Yanjing Library uh, in making the selections, and the support of the Fairbank Center made the exhibition possible. So <laughs> what is... Um, you will hear all about it from the director of Guan uh, very shortly. But let me just say that it is the biggest privately owned library in mainland China that is open to public. So the library is primarily built upon the private collection of the man who launched Kung Fu Zi Wang, which is believed to be the world's largest online platform for the circulation of um, used books, old books, Shu. So um, the Zha Library was founded in 2015 with uh, Mr. Gao Xiaosong, a very well-known cultural figure uh, serving as its director. So it was Mr. Gao Xiaosong who gave the library its name, Zha, a word that means miscellaneous, multifarious, mixed, uh, or simply put, eclectic. So the name, I think, really very well captures the spirit of this unique library um, because its extensive collection has a very wide range of pre-modern uh, to modern materials in both printed and manuscript media. So there are as you will see from the exhibition upstairs, there are Tang manuscript copies, uh, Song printed editions, there are Liao and Xixia printed sutras in Chinese and in Tangut, uh, there are Ming and Qing clan lineages, and local gazetteers, which you will hear um, being discussed by uh, Professor Michael Zoni shortly. Um, there are autographs by prominent late Qing and early Republican personages, and a very large trove of popular materials from the late 19th through early 20th century. And the popular materials found in this last category, um, these were not traditionally widely <coughs> sought by private collectors or public uh, libraries. So these materials are really um, uh, to me, I think it's really one of the major highlights of the Zha li uh, Library. They're juxtaposed with the writings of the highest political and cultural elite of the day. So these materials from the lower strata of the literate society give us a very good sense of the multifariousness Zha 
of social life in China during a period of turmoil and change. So along with a choice selection of the other materials, the collection of the popular materials is featured most prominently in this exhibition. And the Harvard librarians have also made available a small selection from the very vast collection of the Harvard Yanjing Library as a accompaniment and, um, and uh, complement of the Za library materials on display. So the joint exhibition is designed to give the audience um, a taste, just a small taste of these two really excellent library collections. They also will offer a glimpse into the diverse social reality in Chinese history, and they prompt us to reflect on the nature and the significance of archival and private collection uh, in modern China, and that is the theme of this panel uh, today. So we have on our panel um, four speakers uh, today. We have Mr. Gao Xiaozong himself, um, and who really needs no introduction uh, to um, the people in this room. His uh, many accomplishments include being the director of the Zashu Guan, <laughs> and who has also opened several libraries throughout China. And that's you know, really a great uh, enterprise and a great thing uh, to do. And we have Riley Brett Roche, PhD candidate in history from Stanford University. Um, and uh, Riley spent last year in China as a Mellon International Dissertation Research Fellow working on a dissertation, and I believe a future book, on modern China's archives. And we have uh, Catherine Alexander, who teaches Chinese literature at um, University of Colorado and a scholar of Baojuan. So she will share her insights about Baojuan and you know, the popular material, you know, the Baojuan is particularly kind of well featured in the exhibition and in the collection of the Zashu Guan. Um, and uh, last but not the least, we have Professor Michael Zoni, uh, who is Frank Wen. Xiong Wu, Memorial Professor of Chinese History and the Director of Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard. So I want to just uh, um, take the opportunity to thank Michael um, and the Fairbank Center, as well as the Za Library and the Harvard Engine Library for their support of this project. And I want to give a special note of thanks to the librarians, uh, Mr. Ma Xiaohe, Ms. Annie Wang, and Ms. Sharon Yang, and also Ms. Xiao Ge uh, from the Za Shu Guan, and also to the very talented staff at the Fairbank Center, Mark Grady and James Evans. So. Um, Thank you very much for all your help to make this event possible. So now I want to turn it over to our panelists. Uh, so first, let us welcome Mr. Gao Xiaozong, the Zashu Guan Guanzhang. Thank you, Xiaofei. Uh, thank you, Michael. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Selfie already said 90% of my lines, so <laughs> <laughs> almost everything. Uh, where's the remote control? Okay. Uh, actually, uh, yet, uh, last year I did a uh, pretty long presentation of uh, Zashu Guan in uh, East Asian la language and, and civiliz civilization department, so I don't want to repeat the whole thing. It's a very, very long stuff, 50 pages of this PPT. And so today I just want to uh, change an angle from content side to the resource 
uh, talking about Confuse.com. Uh, first, I'd love to read this in Chinese. <laughs> I can't translate this to, to, to English. Uh, <笑>一位十月只一大学科技哲几埃及平民见血巴黎天地不仁举世惶惶居庙堂者全无庙算出江湖者粪土江山今天看起来好像更是这样啊回约大县将至争送末世一文同月于京郊于天之角大藏家县
给杂志馆买书，应该说自己一分钱都没有留，啊，也没房也没车，然后老婆还离婚了，这个因为老婆受不了，说你这，人家都老公往家拿钱，这老公往家拿书，如果我们不做这个图书馆，就家里都没地方做，就全是书，然后这个，呃，也对，现在有。呃，一万五千个，这不是现在，这是之前的数字，一零年。现在的数字是，一共有，看到了 ，Yeah， this one the dominant market in China covered like more than ninety percent of the whole 旧书的市场。然后他把所有的一万五千家书店，啊，八万多家书摊，这个书摊跟书店的区别就是。这个 bookstore 跟 bookstore 的区别就是 ，bookstore 要交钱，然后那个书摊不用交钱，但是呢 ，bookstore 的这个 transaction fee 是百分之一点五，然后 bookstore 的 transaction fee 是百分之三，就是大概是这样子，所以更多的人就开个书摊，因为他可能没有那么多的 liquidity， 所以他就在那儿不不用交钱，然后有偶尔卖出一本书就。付个百分之三，大概大概就是这样。基本上一年，杂志馆现在这个、我不知道哈佛眼镜图书馆一年有多少预算，有多少预算，不能说是吧？<笑>好，那就那杂志馆的一一年的呃，每一年的呃，用来购书的差不多是在三千三千多万的。人民币的这样的规模，就几乎就是孔夫子旧书网的所有的 profit， 所以这个是一个让我自己啊、呃、非常感动的地方。所以我自己为什么后来自己又开了一系列的图书馆，就是因为我被这个何先生啊、呃，这位先生也本来都不让我说他姓什么啊、呃，他是人民大学的一位教授，然后这个而且教的是金融。但是一点金融头脑也也也没有，因为因为很多很多那个 venture capital 来说 ，OK， you you're the number one， 啊、uh, ， dominant market number one in the field， 但是他说我不要任何投资人，因为我不想要别的股东，因为我不能 share any profit 给所有的股东，所以他就不要任何人投资，啊，所以这个公司到现在没有利润，也不上市，然后。这个也不要投资，就因为他赚的所有钱都用来做这个事。后来把我给感动了，我开始只是说哦，我不要钱，我来做馆长，这个我一分钱也不要。后来我说，我也得尽点贡献，所以我后来从我自己兜里，我也拿了很多钱出来，这个我也做了一个 foundation， 然后也买书，然后后来就开上瘾了这玩意儿，后来就开到大家知道我开了。在杭州开了小书馆，后来在北京开了，就是引一上来就就绷不住了，然后就后来又开了个小岛，就不光是书了，后来把黑胶、唱片、什么电影，我自己在美国买了大概六十公斤的黑胶唱片，这个这个这个 Rhino 自己不那个那个那个那那个自己自己。那个背回中国，到了到了那个那个那个、飞机场，人家还不让我上，说因为太重了，超重，我自己还在飞机场分分成好几个箱子，然后背回去。所以今年马上告诉大家好消息，这个
南京的嗯小书馆马上下周就开了，所以这个我就非常高兴的就走上了这条道路，嗯，走上一条不挣钱花钱的道路，呃 ，OK， 下面讲几个小故事啊，就是原来没有。呃，互联网的时候，其实收集旧书是非常难的。嗯，这个你到到哪儿去收呢？你到琉璃厂，到荣宝斋，然后门口去，但是你永远只收不齐。这个你也不知道剩下那，比如说你收个杂志，你收个你剩下那那几本几几期到底在谁手里，你不知道。所以这个有了互联网以后，这个是特别好的事情。就是比如说，这就是一个很好的例子，就是，呃，零七年的时候一本域外小收集，这是周氏兄弟。目前传世的唯一的一本，两个人，周树人、周作人两位大师啊，中国民民国文学史上这个专门有一个时代叫周氏兄弟时代，就在那个时代里，他俩是那个一边植一牛耳，这牛有俩耳朵，就他俩就全给植了。然后他俩一起，后来他俩掰了，这这事儿大家都知道。这个因为他说他他他哥哥偷看我老婆洗澡，哎，这这关系怎么？对，反正周作人说鲁迅偷看他老婆洗澡之类的吧，因为他们住在一起，这个于是就掰了，掰了之后就再也没有过任何两个人一起这个的作品出现，所以这是一本绝本，当时只卖了四十，全世界只有四十本，当时卖了，然后其他全都销毁了，结果就出现在这个孔网上，当时这哥们儿自个儿不知道这东西的价值，只卖二十五块钱，<笑>真的。他真的就开了二十五块，说，结果瞬间当当时就拍到两万，因为孔网上的人有大量的学者，然后教授，这个这个研究者，然后突然一看到这本书出现了，然后马上，最后这本书拍到二十九万七千，这个才卖掉啊，这个，所以这就是这个有了互联网的好处，有没有没有互联网的时候，他卖二十五块。除了像宋一鸣这样的好人，会会说“我给你两万”，你要碰见我，我肯定说二十三，然后，对呀、啊，然后我就买了。那你一个人怀这个怀揣这么好的宝贝，卖了二二十五块钱，所以有了这个东西以后，无论是藏家、卖家、买家，其实我觉得都有，都都得到很多的这个这个 benefit。这个就是有了互联网的好处。啊，当然这个是一会儿大家呃上去，要一会儿有教授要这个专门美女教授专门要讲这个这个宝卷，但是这个是也是因为有了孔网才能收齐的一个一个东西，因为这个呃在存存世的本来就非常少，嗯，然后你把它给收齐了，这个是呃非常难的，如果没有互联网的话，你几乎是很难做到这个，大家一会儿可以上去看看啊，这个。看看当时中国的这个民间宗教是什么样的。其实一会儿，因为有有专家讲，我就不多讲了。这个很有意思的一个叫罗教啊，好像现在中国也有也有罗教啊，就是大家崇拜姓罗的有吗？<笑><笑>这是宝贝，嗯嗯嗯嗯 ，OK， 这是一个很好的例子，就是。把一套《北洋画报》最后终于收齐了，就是从不同的地方、不同的人手里。然后，这个杂志馆是这样：杂志馆呃，整个民国时期啊、呃，就那几十年，大概一共出过呃两万五千种杂志。民国时期是呃
中国当时文化爆发的那个时期，啊，因为开始原来晚清当时在租界里有很多杂志啊，这这种东西画报啊，电视摘画报等等，这个杂志网也是齐的，啊，当然民国时候出两万五千种杂志，大概呃全世界存量最多的就在杂志馆，差不多一万一万两两千多种，就是一半都都在，都是而且收的比较齐。就是因为有互联网，没有这个东西，你不可能把这些玩意儿收齐。然后我很高兴的是，有很多教授经常会写封信来说，我想要某一期某一期的。这个有一次，那个呃，燕京哈佛研究院长给我写了一封信，说想要某一期日本占领大东北日战期间大连日报的一个某一张，居然给找到了。这个。让我就非常的呃自豪。哦，好，这个是有意思。这个我们在孔网上收到了一个叫《大同学》的这个这个东西，是出版在一八九九年，上面有《共产党宣言》。然后在一八九九年啊，这是目前在全中国的所有的文献里第一次看到最早的出现了。共产党宣言讲到了马克思，讲到了恩格斯，讲到了这个，呃，共产党是什么？这个就在一八九九年就已经有了，这个目前被收藏了。所以你要，其实你要干这个事儿，这正好都有。马克思，这仨字儿就跟现在一样，<笑>这个，呃，从来就叫他叫这名字，一直没改名。这个名人，对，<笑>对。他把它弄错了，他就是说成英人啊。不过他确实在那个恩格斯，恩格斯每每月给他两磅，养了他很长时间。然后这个，这个在那儿写写，却所以把他当成英国人了。啊，这个那个时候你要有机会去杂杂志馆看看那个时候的书，你会觉得可有意思。弄错的事情，然后对世界的不了解，然后这个以及。今天用用今天的 political correctness 去看，简直令人发指的北大的教材，然后说世界人种分五类，啊，那就这么写的，啊，白的强，黄的骨，黑蠢棕威红灭亡，京师国立大学堂啊，这个的教材就就京师国立大学堂教材在呃国家图书馆，中国国家图书馆里有有七种。杂志馆有十六种，就基本上收的非常多的这种，啊，我今天就不，因为我要留更多时间给 Q&A 啊、呃，以及、呃、好不容易远道而来学者们，我就不多讲，一会儿大家到 Q&A 的时候再来啊回答这个问题。今天就主要介绍一下我们的来源以及我们令人尊敬的何副馆长，谢谢各位。Thank you. Am I going in the right?、Um, is there a way to <laughs> skip? Oh, I think you'll have to.、Mm -hmm. I have to cut、oh. out and open the next one, right? Okay. okay.
something. <laughs> no, it's all right. <laughs> I'm not very good at this either. So how do we? Uh... No, don't touch that screen. <laughs> okay, that's the control panel. You, you... I, I guess while we deal with this, I There's would like to oh, here. <laughs> say thank you. I, I spent the past year in Beijing doing dissertation research. Um, and so I was able to go to the Zashuguan a couple of times. Um, in fact, I spent many days there. And actually, my sister came to visit me um, during the spring festival time. And she doesn't speak any Chinese, but she's a, a kindergarten teacher. And we really enjoyed looking through some of the old comic books that you've collected. Oh. So it's a place that appeals to everyone. <laughs> Thank you. OK. Um, all right, I'm delighted to be here to discuss the Zaw Library, the most pleasant sun-filled research center I worked in during my year of dissertation research. Um, to contextualize the history of the Zaw Library, I offer an overview of a century of private collecting by focusing on three periods of turmoil in Beijing that reshaped the market in rare books and the history that we know today. The, the fall of the Qing Empire, the Japanese occupation, and the Cultural Revolution. Here, private library is considered a collection of books. His I'm sorry, am I not loud enough? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, here, private library is considered a collection of books, historical materials, and artifacts, taking into account the social, political, personal practices, and fluctuating market conditions that led to this unique grouping. The study of private libraries cannot be divorced from the shifting role of the intellectual. But it, also, it should also be linked with the paper recyclers, grave diggers, and clerks who found treasure in the trash. Waves of violence scattered the existing market in rare books and demolished cultural institutions that safeguarded sources, allowing for competing claims and attempts to reconstitute China. In all three sections, I highlight creative efforts to collect in Beijing under the constraints of censorship and violence. Why focus on collecting? Because the recycling of private into public and back again has real consequences for our understanding of Chinese history. We must consider what China is being collected and how this changes over time. A hopeful yet humbling view of history as a constant project emerges as bibliophiles go about their work in the chaos. Why focus on collecting in what is now known as Beijing? Because in Beijing, the relationship between potential narratives and political narratives is constantly policed, creating a potent anxiety over possibilities. Geographically, this history of bibliophiles is centered on Liu Lichang, or the Curios District, as it's labeled on this 1936 map by Frank Dorn. Um, here, I don't know what the pointer is, but here's the Curio District. And I'd just like to point out that it's at the confluence of some really important cultural centers, just south of the Forbidden City, close to the um, embassy, district, embassy District, the legation area, and near the traditional end of the Silk Route, um, near the Ox Street Mosque, which you'll see in the corner down there. After the fall of the Qing in 1912, the debate over securing the historical materials of the Forbidden City for the people best illustrates the precarity of this project to make public what was once private. The Imperial Library was an archive of historical documents, depository of literature, and repository of relics. Safeguarding this collection and making it accessible was tied to the legitimacy of the new political order. Collectors watched the fumbling attempts of various warlord regimes and the Kuomintang with frustration. Lu Xun was an avid bibliophile who adored Liu Lichang. In 1916, he walked down that winding lane more than 80 times, often on social trips with other reformers like Hu Shi, who called for the abolition of Chinese characters, even as he expanded an impressive collection of ancient documents. It was a cosmopolitan market. In 1913, the year before he was appointed the director of the New Qing History Museum, founded by Yuan Shikai, bibliophile Zhou Zhaoxiang recorded purchases in his journal, including stone rubbings from Shanxi, a folio depicting flowers for, in Chengdu, and Beijing drum songbooks, like some that you'll see upstairs. 
Regulars noted the sale of documents from the Forbidden City, picked over the plunder of archaeological sites, and debated the authenticity of recent purchases in a market awash in fakes. In 1914, Joe wrote, if antiquities are not collected, then they can't be passed down. If antiquities are not collected with care, then they are easily lost. And he advocated for increased investment in maintaining cultural objects. Progress was too slow. In an article published in December of 1927, Lu Xun concluded, Chinese public things are not easy to protect. If the authority is a layman, he makes things worse. If he is an expert, he steals things. In fact, it's not just a problem for books or antiques. What role... What was the role of bibliophiles under such conditions? It was to bear witness by collecting and commenting. Despair over the dispersal of precious historical materials generated dramatic plans for reform and more immediate efforts to define and secure cultural patrimony. These private efforts informed visions of what China was and could be. Um, and here, this, the photographs above is of porters moving the Qing archival documents in the late 1920s um, to libraries around Beijing, including Beida and museums and other cultural institutions. Um, no surprise that some of these fell off and ended up for sale in markets in Liaolichang and bookstores there. They were purchased by Beijing bibliophiles, including uh, Luo Jianyu, but also foreign collectors. The Japanese military was responsible for the destruction of private libraries through strategic bombings and organized lootings. Specialized units in the army prepared for the invasion by reading through catalogs of library, museum, and private collections. One 1949 report submitted to the Far Eastern Commission commented on the situation in Suzhou, which had parallels with Beijing. They first looked for cultural objects. Next, they searched for imported articles of value, such as cameras, radios, refrigerators, pianos, and the like, and then personal effects and household belongings. An outcome of such raids were the new libraries built in occupied China, like the Modern Science Library in Beijing. The occupation also funded indexing and cataloging projects, including an ambitious attempt to gather and republish the Qing Dynasty's complete library in four sections, the Suku Chuanshu. In Beijing, new laws and regulations censored materials and encouraged the study and use of Japanese. War and occupation reshaped the marketplace and rare books. The number of bookstores in Beijing increased from 40 in 1931 to 151 in 1949. As books became cheaper, doctors, teachers, and officials of all stripes began collections. Increasingly, bibliophiles focused on current affairs rather than the distant past and started gathering ephemera. For example, bookseller Liu Dawen, nicknamed the Magazine King, Zhajir Dawang, told his son about rescue missions to trash piles outside of the Chongwen Gate and his risky strategy of hiding his finds behind acceptable titles. For this generation, personal passion and political, political conditions motivated collecting whether in support or in spite of a variety of national narratives. Photographs suggest that Liu Lichang continued to prosper under the occupation. Recalling his experience as an apprentice bookseller, Lei Mengshui wrote, in the old society, booksellers were not righteous, and booksellers who specialized in serving customers of foreign countries were even more shameful. Lei worked for a bookstore that sourced materials for Japanese research projects in rural China. During the occupation, he also strategically amassed collection catalogs, and under the People's Republic of China, Lei relied on these sources to advise the Cultural Relics Committee on projects to find scattered archives, books, and manuscripts. Um, the photo, the two, first two photographs you see here are from uh, their propaganda photographs from the North China Railway Collection, um, recently digitized by Kyoto University. It's an amazing collection of images from occupied um, China. Like, we cannot find them anywhere else. Um, and the first is of a book market, an outdoor book market in Beijing. The second is of the children's reading room. 
um, in the Modern Science Library. And the third image here is the cover of a magazine uh, that Liu Dawen, um, according to his son, collected, Dongfang Zajer, Eastern Miscellany, one of the magazines that was banned under the Japanese occupation. In the People's Republic of China, collecting was justified by utility to the revolution, and professors, publishers, and cadres affiliated with cultural affairs units had an easier time building collections. Others sold their books to the new China bookstore, Xinhua Xudian, or China bookstore, Zhongguo Xudian, and 14 large collections were donated to the National Library in 1950 alone. We are all familiar with Mao Zedong's personal library from photographs of his meeting with President Nixon. And here you'll see it in the background um, from where there's the books are laid horizontally with um, flaps hanging down to let you know what's there. Um, I'm sorry. But building private collections was a passion for many elite cadres. One example was Mao's secretary, Tian Jiaying. Born in Sichuan, at, si at 16, Tian made his way to Yai'an and joined the party in 1938. Tian was an early casualty of the Cultural Revolution, committing suicide on May 23, 1966, the day after he was accused of falsifying Mao's writings and his home was raided by Red Guards. His collection was likely one of the reasons he was persecuted. By 1960, he had thousands of books and uh, archival materials such as diaries, letters, and calligraphy samples of late Qing reformers. A special interest was foreign constitutions. Tian's carefully stamped collection was sealed off in Zhongnanhai until he was rehabilita rehabilitated in the 1980s when portions of it were returned to his wife and daughters. Many of today's bibliophiles got their start during the Cultural Revolution. Red Guards were enthusiastic collectors, exchanging enamel pins and bottles of revolutionary soil. In interviews, I heard stories of Red Guards who quietly pocketed books from paper recycling piles. These same Red Guards may have been among the 700 to 800 men and women who descended on the China bookstore in Liu Lichang when it reopened on May 10, 1972. A report to the Revolutionary Municipal Council submitted at the end of its first month describes subsections of these readers, including careful and hilarious profiles of foreigners. Today, a member of the National Cultural Relics Appraisal Committee, Yang Cheng Kai, recalled, it was still the middle of the Cultural Revolution, and some people had lingering fears from the Destroy the Four Olds campaign earlier in the Cultural Revolution. Um, they carefully observed from the sidelines and didn't dare meddle. I found the courage to do the best I could to take advantage of the opportunity. For the low price of three to five yuan a book, I purchased hundreds of books and more than 2,000 threadbound books. Of these, the great majority were from the Qing dynasty and printed using wood blocks. Among them were dozens of rare editions and dozens of precious finds. Now retired with expendable incomes, some former Red Guards have curated private collections and today are among the most enthusiastic advocates for public museums to witness the history of modern China. Huge profits from the sale of historical documents to private collectors returns us to the question of access. In a blog post, archivist Guo Hongjie protested the 2012 sale of a portion of Liang Qichao's personal archive by a Beijing auction house. Guo concluded, archive administrators at all levels have a role to play in safeguarding the archives law and effectively protecting scattered archives that have preservation value for the nation and society. In such a competitive market, scholars have increasingly turned to grassroots sources, Minjian Li Shidang'an, the personal files, diaries, and letters of everyday people that are collected by paper recyclers, sold at flea markets, and then resold to scholars. Within the past decade, this market too has moved online into auction house and is regulated by the state. Under censorship, the logic of the market confronts the political narrative of state-sanctioned history and sparks fly. Materials that fail to conform are rare and desirable. Eventually, this source base is incorporated, erased, or stored away, and the cycle continues. Private collections serve as a reservoir of memories to affect public possibilities. 
If you're interested in history's future, find a paper recycler or talk to his friend who collects discarded floppy disks and DVDs. Thanks very much. <laughs>
for millennia in China. And that's really what got me thinking about this question, is that this seems rather jarring. But the reality is that genealogies have, from their very beginnings, been both public and private and circulated between the public and the private, and actually had an interesting commercial element as well, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, so unlike the other major genre that we're going to hear about today, Baojuan, or precious volumes, genealogies are a very ancient genre in China. Indeed, some of the earliest surviving texts in the Chinese language are genealogical. Right? Um, and so I suppose that in some ways you might argue that genealogies are the oldest continuous there's, we hear a lot in China about the oldest continuous tradition in China. Um, but genealogies are probably the oldest continuous literary genre because we have them from the very beginning. I mean, we don't write in Jaguan anymore. We don't generally ask for predictions about rain. But people still continue their genealogies. Um, from, for, for the early imperial period, from the Han to the Tang and into towards the, 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 the end of Tang, uh, genealogical records of families eligible to hold office were an important genre that was similarly both public and private uh, because uh, the, the uh, being recorded in these genealogies indicated one's eligibility to hold political, to hold imperial office, which meant that the imperial government actually managed their uh, maintenance. Uh, no extant uh, 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 Han, no extant genealogies uh, from Han to Tang are known to exist, um, but we are able to reconstruct portions of them in, in fragments. Um, one of the interesting things about this phase in genealogical history is that already in this period, uh, people were uh, counterfeiting and faking and making uh, uh, and trying to put in information that didn't belong, as Professor Tian uh, uh, details in her account of, of Liang history. We see from the, this must be early 6th century, the Liang Shu. Liang, um, Liang Shu. It was the 7th century, early 7th century. Well, a long time ago, sixth century. <laughs> century. A lot, you know, there are there are accounts of uh, of people interfering with the compilation of genealogies um, for very practical reasons, and this is something that continues throughout the succeeding century. Although it's not something I'm going to talk about very much. Um, this phase in the history of genealogy uh, comes to an end with the collapse of the uh, imperial, uh, the 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 uh, the systems of hereditary office-holding families. Um, but then in the Song, under the influence of Neo-Confucian thinkers like uh, uh, Ouyang Xiu and Su Si and, and uh, Zhu Xi, uh, a new form of genealogy uh, emerges. And it then spreads over the last thousand years of Chinese history enormously uh, widely. Um, and uh, although we think of genealogies as perhaps being especially common in southern China in this period, they actually can be found virtually uh, everywhere. Um, and this uh, has led me to make the somewhat polemical claim, but I think it's true uh, in my, in my uh, 2017 book, that uh, in terms of sheer numbers, in, term, in purely quantitative terms, uh, genealogies are the greatest surviving source uh, for Chinese history uh, in Ming and Qing times. Um, the, uh, 
the Cultural Revolution, of course, uh, is a, a, a very a, a, a dramatic and devastating period for lineage organization in general in China, and genealogies in particular as the kind of physical uh, reflection of the clan or the lineage. Uh, millions of genealogies are destroyed, um, which meant that uh, when, when I began my studies of China in the 80s, so just coming out of the, the, the Cultural Revolution, the general sense was that this private document no longer existed privately, that all genealogies were held in libraries, mostly research libraries uh, outside of China, in particular the Mormon uh, 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 Family History Society in uh, Salt Lake City, was thought to have the largest collection of Chinese genealogies uh, at the time. Um, interestingly, and this um, touches, comes, come, relates in ways I wasn't expecting to Riley's pr presentation. Uh, interestingly, um, uh, many genealogies turned out were preserved during the Cultural Revolution by being deposited in uh, uh, repositories, not necessarily libraries, because they were not typically seen as books worthy of collection, but in uh, archives. Uh, and I suspect often by uh, 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 cultural cadres who were hoping to, uh, uh, allow, to, to, to allow genealogies to survive the devastation, but also sometimes by investigators and red guards and public security officials who used the genealogies as evidence of the perfidy of, uh, of uh, the exploiting classes. But I think that the main thing I want to say is actually that despite our expectation or our belief at that time that the genealogical tradition was over and that genealogies, private genealogies in China had disappeared, um, huge numbers, it turned out, survived. Uh, and anyone who does genealogical collection, as I do in rural China, will encounter stories of the heroic efforts of uh, ordinary people to preserve their family genealogies uh, as, as tremendously important private documents that they now share with scholars and researchers and make public in a new way. Um, the uh, the uh, revival of uh, genealogy, so I'll, I'll just say a couple of words about the revival of uh, genealogical compilation in contemporary China. Um, this is uh, related to, but distinct from, the overall uh, revival of lineage activities in China. Um, the revival of lineage compilation uh, uh, in China goes through waves uh, and, and varies by region, but I think it's safe to say that it's happening virtually everywhere uh, in, in, uh, 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 across China. And across China, you find elderly villagers organizing themselves into yen tao hui to prepare the, the compilation of the, or the recompilation of their lineage genealogy. Um, the uh, the uh, um, the passion and the um, devotion that uh, people uh, uh, in villages that I've encountered all across China uh, exhibit towards this phenomenon is 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 truly inspiring. Um, the in many cases these are based on uh, surviving genealogies, and I thought I would just say one quick word. Uh, about the scale of survivals. I mentioned the, the moving stories of people hiding their genealogies and bringing them out. Um, the largest 
current catalog of pre-modern genealogies is the catalog uh, of the Shanghai Municipal Library, which is also the largest repository of genealogies, pre-modern genealogies in China. Um, the, geneal the, the library holds about 10 to 20,000 genealogies, depending on how you define the term. The catalog contains about 40,000 genealogies. Um, by my estimate, the number of catalog genealogies um, is exceeded by the number of actual genealogies, probably by at least two orders of magnitude. That is to say, library catalogs have collected, uh, have records of tens of thousands of genealogies, but the numbers of surviving genealogies uh, is actually certainly in the millions uh, and probably in the tens of millions. Uh, when I do collecting trips in China, I obviously start with the Shanghai uh, catalog, and it's not unusual to go to a county with two uh, or three entries in the Shanghai catalog and within a few weeks to have located hundreds and sometimes several hundreds of genealogies. So there, there, there's, there, there's an extraordinary resource inherited from the past, but to turn back to um, the, the, the interest in the present, I mentioned already the great interest in recompiling genealogies. Uh, my former student, Li Renyuan, who now teaches at, or works at Academia Sinica, uh, has actually studied families of hereditary genealogists. So these are professional genealogists who began their business in the 18th century uh, of compiling genealogies on behalf of other families. Uh, and that hereditary tradition, which we would have thought was completely lost, has now been revived. And uh, these genealogists are once again passing on their family traditions uh, and traveling to rural China their uh, methods are quite extraordinary. They go into the hills and record what's on the tombstones, and they go into the ancestral halls and record what's on the, the uh, ancestral tablets and produce genealogies for uh, interested, for the people who hire them. Uh, and then, of course, the other extraordinary aspect of genealogical compilation in contemporary China is online uh, genealogy, uh, which, which is, uh, and many genealogies now uh, um, Exist. I hope that I actually. So yes, it is a. It is a. Uh, it is a, an image of a, a, a genealogy being compiled online, and lots of genealogies now exist only, only online. So let me just close with a couple of thoughts about uh, what the opportunities and challenges that this presents. That this presents for scholarship. Uh, I'm speaking here of the phenomenon of genealogical compilation, circulation, uh, transmission more generally. Um, the first and most obvious question for us as scholars is why is it happening? That is to say, why is the tracing of descent seen as socially productive in contemporary China? I think this is something that few of us would have expected. Uh, the, the, uh, for one thing, um, the tracing of descent uh, across family lines was has come under attack by virtually every political regime that has governed China since the late 19th century. Uh, so the Qing tried to stamp it out, the Republic tried to stamp it out, uh, the, the, uh, the, the PRC tried to stamp it out, both in uh, the Maoist era and in the early uh, uh, reform era. There's a, a, a famous uh, intervention by Hu Yaobang about how bad genealogies are and how we should really stamp them out. So it's kind of an interesting phenomenon and one of many examples of how Chinese people uh, uh, resist what the political regime that governs them tells them to do. 
Um, and one might simply look at it as the, the current interest in, in genealogical compilation as a kind of cultural survival. Um, that's not typically something, an, an explanation that historians find very satisfying uh, because we want to know why it survives and how it's changed over time. Uh, some people have argued that it is uh, uh, an expression of the general sense of spiritual malaise that is uh, uh, occurring in China today, that, that uh, we can look at geneal genealogical compilation as a kind of something comparable to the explosion of Christianity, the explosion of new religions, uh, the, the reappearance of old religions, that this is a, a product of, of uh, a general sense of uneasiness with China's headlong rush into global capitalism. Um, a third set of explanations focus on the concrete benefits of uh, knowing your kin. Um, there's a lot of, of research that shows that there is a, a real uh, a material uh, benefit, a network benefit to, uh, uh, in all kinds of ways, in terms of local government, in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of public goods provision. Um, and so that there, there is an argument that says that people do this because they see which side of the, the, where their bread is buttered, and this has material benefits. Uh, I don't have an answer, but it's certainly an intriguing historical question. Uh, I talked a couple of times about the older villagers that, uh, that I encounter who are devoting their uh, uh, retirement years to compiling their family genealogy. But equally interesting, of course, are the young people, sometimes people living in the city away from the village, for whom the compilation of their genealogy is a great source of interest and attention and pride. Um, the uh, rush to uh, commodification embodied by, um, uh, embodied by Kung Fu Zi and, uh, 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 but to the benefit of the Zashu Guan, uh, well, well, uh, well, certainly to be, um, uh, well, it certainly had some very positive impacts, um, has had some, some uh, uh, more negative concern, more negative consequences for scholarship. Um, the the uh, uh, so these are these are actually um, uh, this is a photograph taken in an ancestral hall, not actually. Oh, that is actually a genealogy in the back there. Um, some of the students in this room uh, joined me uh, this summer on a trip to Yongtai in, in northwestern Fujian, where we are gathering an enormous collection of local documents, including genealogies. Um, and basically, the big challenge and the big urgency is that we actually have to get at them before the antique dealers do. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, the, the, uh, the conditions that, that will facilitate research depend on us being able to associate these books with the places that produce them. And of course, once they are on Kung Fu Zi, uh, that, that is lost. There is, an, there is a, Well, you cannot pay only 25 yuan to... <laughs> Doesn't matter. I, I would I would pay more, but it's <laughs> so this is so this is this is a, a real concern. Um, the other thing that is extraordinary, and I, I'm curious how Kung Fu happens to do this, is so one of the one of the uh, one of the kinds of materials that I'm particularly interested in are land deeds. And these are some students, uh, uh, perhaps some students in this room. Actually, those may be your hands. I can't remember whose hands those are. Uh, scanning these scanning these deeds. And uh, there's a market in Chinese for all kinds of antiques. Uh, I would not have thought land deeds, uh, old land deeds, saying that in, this is, I can't even read what, but saying that in, in the mid-Qing, this piece of land was sold from this guy to that guy. Um, there's actually a market for that in China today, um, which raises to my amazement the, uh, the danger, the, the renewed danger of counterfeiting. 
Um, this is a particular problem in one of the sort of centers of Chinese local documents, which is Huizhou. Uh, and you, you really can't be sure that a deed or a genealogy or any document uh, from Huizhou that you see. Uh, I'm sure Confuzo has all kinds of methods to guarantee authenticity. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I won't say where. But certainly, this is a, you know, this is a new challenge. Um, interestingly, so one of, the things that, one of the things that people always ask me when they learn that I study genealogies is how do you know they're, how do you know they're true? How do you know they're not counterfeited? And of course, the, 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 I won't get into this in much detail, but, but actually they're interesting to me as a historian regardless. Um, and uh, I don't actually care in any sense whether the line of begat, he begat, he begat, he begat actually corresponds to some biological relationship between human beings, which is what people who ask that question are asking. Um, I'm, I'm curious why these documents were produced, why they were important to people, why they circulate, and indeed why faking them and counterfeiting them matters to people. Um, so in some ways, while I'm cautioning about the, the danger of commercialization, in fact, uh, the, the issue of reliability doesn't actually matter to, to me very much as a, as a scholar. And then the biggest question, I guess, is whether the Chinese genealogy has a future. That is to say, as so I'm sure all of you in the room have seen photographs like these of the um, uh, members of the household who are away, represented by their empty chairs, and the members of the household present, represented by the people. Uh, as China becomes an urban society uh, uh, with uh, few ties or no ties to the rural communities that first produced the familism of, of the lineage, whether um, uh, whether shared, interest, whether shared ancestry will continue to be socially meaningful for Chinese people uh, is a really interesting question that, that uh, I encourage you all to explore. Let me come back to the Zashuguan uh, with some maybe somber closing comments. Um, so it turns out um, that the process of reform and opening up in China um, faces reverses, uh, faces obstacles, faces reverses in the political realm, faces reverses in the economic realm, uh, faces, realm uh, faces reverses that we might not have expected. Uh, until quite recently, I was fairly confident that, that we wouldn't face reserve reverses in the academic realm that the academic story would continue to be uh, one of, of ongoing opening up, uh, ongoing uh, uh, more and more interaction, uh, uh, free interaction both within China and between Chinese scholars and the rest of the world. Uh, unfortunately, that's of course not happening. And we are seeing um, the closing of some freedoms that scholars used to enjoy. Um, these are of course much more serious, I mean they, they, they impact our research, but they are of course much more serious for Chinese scholars in China. Uh, uh, that being said, um, there are perhaps also new opportunities that new modes of preserving and circulating and sharing information like the Zashuguan uh, present, for which I'm very grateful. Thank you all. Thank you. Oh, that, that was it? Yep. It begins the blank slide. I think I may have ruined it now. Oh, you just closed PowerPoint. I did. Um, Sorry. Let's reopen PowerPoint and it should be in one of the last open yep. files. Yep. That's it? I don't, nope. <laughs> <laughs>
recent Alexander. There we are. Sorry about that. No worries. I'll start it for you. Mm -hmm. you wanna... Sorry about that. No problem. Before anything else, and can you hear me, first of all? Yes. yes, marvelous, thank you. Before anything else, I want to express deep gratitude to Professor Xiaofei Tian for inviting me to take part in this panel discussion and for her enthusiasm a few years ago when she introduced me to the Zashu Guan and the fantastic potential that it offers to my ongoing research. So thank you, Xiaofei, for lighting the spark for me. And thank you, Gao Xiaosong, for the valuable contributions to the preservation and study of under-preserved popular texts that your direction at Zasuban supports. Thank you. In my allotted time today, I would like to first explain a bit how my research often is at odds with the priorities of mainstream library collections. Then to illustrate this, I'll show a case study of one text that I've been working on lately, Pangong Bao Juan. And hopefully after that, I've left myself enough time to close with some thoughts and some wonderings about how we can further address the kinds of exciting potentials that getting entangled in the za parts of early modern Chinese book culture give us. And if not, I look forward to time in the Q&A and after the panel where we can continue this conversation. My research has its roots in one particular genre of popular religious performance text called Bao Juan, and I specifically work on Bao Juan during the late Qing. Working closely with these Bao Juan has then led me to ask questions about early modern Chinese popular literature much more broadly, particularly its producers, its consumers, its readers, its listeners, and the complex contexts in which popular genres contended for attention in all of the zanas. In addition to entertaining their audiences, Baldrin served vital religious functions, not only in their performances, but also in their publication. To reprint a Baldrin was to make a performance of its own. And so in working with these objects as serious objects of study, rather than dismissively as popular literature, I address issues in non-elite vernacular literature. And I consider questions about the goals of fiction and work out details about relationships between the literate and the illiterate. Because if we consider only the hyper-literate elite readers of fiction and non-fiction, the Su and all of the big texts that we tend to think about in Chinese literature, we end up ignoring the majority of Chinese society who were illiterate listeners. So that we can't apply the usual measures of literary excellence or take habitual approaches to unraveling webs of textual complexity within the stories themselves, we still have to disabuse ourselves of the notion that these were simple texts for simple folk. If anything, the artifacts of popular literature are instead nodes on a vast web of their own, where social complexities that frame their existence make some simplistic readings of their contents actually irresponsible. So I'm especially interested in my own research in how late Qing reformer Yu Zi outspokenly endorsed vernacular literature and the power it wielded to affect its audiences in a period where most literati expressed disdain for these potentially obscene works. And I don't mean obscene necessarily in terms of their content, although some of them were obscene in that way too. I mean obscene in the way that they were spread among these crowds of people, all gathered round, men and women mixing, sellers in the background, ladies with their fans up there, and somebody selling millet in the back. This is the zanas of the popular literary realm. So 
Yuzi actually asked elites to form an uneasy alliance with popular literature in order to harness this destabilizing power for good. All's well and good there. But did anybody care? Was anybody actually listening? So one way that I have worked out how to answer some of these questions involves reconstructing how Yu's texts, uh, many of them are in fact Baojuan, but he also wrote plays, he also wrote um, poetry collections for little boys, um, an encyclopedia of how to found your own morality association, complete with the forms that you would need to use, um, to ask, how these texts created out of his own idealistic fervor actually spread or didn't during the final decades of the Qing and beyond. And in order to do this, I had to find them. And in order to find them, I have really had to dig. Um, although I believe that this will be easier when I get a chance to visit Guan. <laughs> Most library collections, for understandable if unimaginative reasons, focus on preserving texts with high cultural cachet. As Professor Wilt Idema mentioned in his lecture here last month, and the podcast is up on the Fairbanks Center website, which is lovely, and if you weren't here to hear the lecture in person, I strongly recommend you go check it out. Professor Wilt Idema mentioned that a lot of the collection practices of libraries in China come down to an arbitrary decision that's made about which text have xing uh, and xing, right? <laughs> So while I have thankfully spent times in libraries with large collections of Baojuan, they're most often minimally cataloged at best, like by name and perhaps just the Qing dynasty. Um, and they're cared for in such a way that can't even really be described as tough love, as you can see <laughs> by some of my photos here from um, a large collection of Baojuan. Um, in fact, I, years ago, I remember watching with horror um, as a board college student employee at a large public library roughly handled a delicate damaged Baldrin that I desperately needed photographed for my own research. And I wasn't allowed to photograph the text myself, so it had to be photocopied. With each page that the student turned and smacked down on the copier, the book crumbled a little bit more. Oh. That's the fate, I fear, of many Qing imprints that don't qualify for shanben status, but get filed away as simple right? So we're now in the messy realm of the zha. So I hope that the following case study from one small aspect of my current research can serve to illustrate the case, both the difficulties of reconnecting those broken nodes that I mentioned, um, thanks to mainstream archival practices, and the potential impact that Zhashu Guan and other private collections have for my research and other people who work in these genres. So I want to talk about Pangong Baojuan. And I won't give you a super long summary of this Baojuan, but Pangong Baojuan is set before, during, and after the Taiping War. It was compiled in 1853 and probably 1854. Um, I have not personally seen extant editions before 1858. My research assistant, a lovely undergraduate named Remy, whose names you might see on some of these slides, found me an 1856 edition, which made me very happy last summer. But Pangong Baojuan is most likely written by Yuzi. And um, it deals with the trauma of the war. It talks about how people can avoid being caught up in the war, 
the fall of Nanjing itself and all of the various horrible sins that brought about the destruction of Nanjing, and then imagines a utopia after the war. So Guan Yin will save you. Pan Gong himself is up in heaven, cataloging all the sins of the people who are going to die in Nanjing and the people who can escape from Nanjing. And then in the end, we can imagine a utopia where after everybody has converted and behaved better, thanks to Pan Gong Baojuan and other texts that Yu Zhi advertises in his own text, he's a shameless self-promoter, that we can imagine a utopia in which everything is back to normal, heaven has ended the Taiping War, and we are at peace again in a Confucian um, paradise. When I begin working on Baojun, anytime I look at any text, I always refer to Ce Xilun's Zhongguo Baojun Zongmu. And this is the authoritative catalog published in the late 90s that reflects previous catalogs of Baojun, but also catalogs from libraries. So these are not all books that Ce Xilun has seen himself, but they are what he collects and what he believes. And actually, I really appreciate you saying that this catalog, when you go to Shanghai Library, will usually tell you one or two books might exist. And then when you go out in the field, you discover how many more are out there. Because this is truly the case when we look at any kind of Baojuan. So Pangong Baojuan, we have 22 entries here. In my archival research over the past few years, I have only been able to directly link Tzu's um, catalog entries with seven books that I have personally seen. And so text doesn't matter here, but there are a lot of gaps in our understanding. And there are a lot of texts that are actually hidden even within Tzu's own um, catalog. And I think I don't have time to give you an example of something from Harvard Yanjing and Guotu. So I'm just going to skip ahead. And if you're really interested, we can talk about this example later. Because I found something in Tzu's catalog that there's actually two editions of. One in Harvard Yanjing, and the blocks were reused by similar donors and um, published again later in greater volume. So what this does, this case study, is shows us that um, there's a decision-making process that the Yu family went under, where um, Yu Wangrei and Yu Men Chen Shi first published 150 volumes of this Baojuan, and then later went back, right, because this is Harvard's copy, this is Guotu's copy, later went back and published 200 more. Okay, so the blocks were used again. Stuff like the standard cataloging doesn't account for these multiple imprints. But due to the scant attention that much Chinese, many Chinese public libraries have, um, the 22 printed and manuscript versions of Pangong that Che records are really only a small fraction of the ones that existed. While I'm sure that many remained to be discovered in library collections, it's in private hands um, that where I found most curious and important additions to my edition list. So this is my personal edition list as I've been working to reconstruct the publication history of Pangong Baojuan. The ones in red are ones that are not in Tzu's catalog. The ones in orange are potentially in Tzu's catalog. The ones that uh, were in light green but look vaguely yellow are the ones that I can clearly identify as in his catalog. And what is most important and interesting to me is if we look here at the ones in blue, these are private collections 
three of which I just learned are in Zhashuguan, so now I definitely need to go. Thank you, by the way, for preparing that spreadsheet for me. It was incredibly helpful. But you can also notice that I have a lot that I find on Kongfuzi. I have not bought them, but there are a lot of beautiful images, and I've been able to do some serious research thanks to Kongfuzi's entries and the photographs that are posted there. I have one other thing I want to point out, and then I will yield my time to Q&A, and that is this issue of reconstructing the publication history of this Baldrin. And every entry I add gives me another sense of the actual practical networks in which this Baldrin circulated. Blue up here is um, wartime publications of the Baldrin. Green is post-war publications to show that the text had incredible traction even after the conflict that it was directly related to is over. Yellow, indeterminate. Curiously here, we have a moment in 1858, and I need to go back and figure out what was happening during the Taiping War in 1858 that allowed for this much publication. A moment in 1858 where I have four proven editions and there are likely more out there still. And where Joshua Guan has given me new insight into this is that my previous three 1858 editions were from Suzhou, Suzhou, and Jiangxi. And Joshua Guan has one from Fujian from the same year. So this text has traveled to an area far beyond the front lines of the war in a very short period of time, four years from the time where the text first came together, all the way down in Fujian. Why, how does the text have prefaces? I need to know these things. So I don't have time to talk about what's next, but I think this is a good chance for the Q&A to begin. So I'm gonna leave this slide up here. Sounds Thank great. you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, this is fine, yeah. Just yeah. Uh, okay. Thank you all for this uh, wonderful, um, really um, thought-provoking um, presentations. So now uh, we don't have a whole lot of time, so I'm just going to uh, open the floor and uh, uh, invite our audience to um, ask questions, comments, anything. Yes. Um, yes. <coughs> for the microphone. Just a couple of quick questions. Uh, one, Professor Zoni, can you just comment quickly on, you know, given the problem about, about you know veracity of these documents, what's the role of kind of genetic research for the study of genealogy? Um,然后问题想问高老师，就是呃，关于这个杂书馆的这个收藏策略啊，因为民间的这个历史文件是既跨度和呃品类非常丰富。那每年这个三千万的预算是一般是怎么制定说呃去购买什么样的东西的话，
哇，然后当时卖一千一千五百块钱，然后大家就开始 bidding， 然后我们把它拿到，呃，分成两种特别有意思，一个是撕成两半的，就是他们家保姆撕的，然后有一个撕成每张撕成十条的，就是杨绛自己自己撕的，然后拼出了现在有嗯一千多封。非常珍贵的钱先生的那个，呃，信啊、手稿啊等等等等，这些东西你没办法有一个计划，你不能说计划杨绛先生今天撕还是明明年撕，<笑>所以基本上就是呃补齐所有的类目，比如说呃补齐民国的杂志，然后有一些类目就比如在世界上比较。呃，领先的就是那更需要把它完善起来，然后就是看这个，因为有了互联网，就这点好嘛，看这个到底有什么啊、呃、惊喜出来。其实你要讲杂志馆的收到的惊喜，那可以讲三天三夜。这个，但是你去看你就知道很很有意思的啊、呃。有些东西我们不展出的，比如说钱先生的信啊，有、呃、因为没办法，所以他他有一些法律问题，就是。人家没有给你授权让你去展出，嗯、让你去贴上。人家这我们就放在后面，当然像啊、呃、这个学者们去的时候是可以看。然后有些东西我们还把它有一些不太好的那个对人家隐私或者那个我们还把它贴上了，就是这块就别看了。那个，<笑>因为因为你要中国就像刚才几位教授讲，中国这个呃政治变迁啊。这个每个人都到什么时候要表态了？什么时候要，要要写那些违背自己意愿的，呃，那些东西？那其实，呃，也也不太好。所以就，但是我们还是，呃，特别希望把这些东西珍珍藏下来，保留下来。呃，预算其实也不是很多。你像我们有一次就花了六百万买到了，呃，梁启超引兵史的全集，就是书信全集，然后一次就花了六百万就。买过来，然后你要去唐宋那儿，那这点钱可就那唐唐宋不了，只能明清。这个，而且我们的办馆的宗旨是我们不认为收藏价值是我们追求的，呃，我们觉得阅读价值、呃，传播价值才是我们追求的。因为我们一直是说，这本书如果没有人看，它就没有价值。那只有有人读它才有价值，所以我们也不在乎别人把它读烂了、翻烂了，然后这些钱花了就是为了让知识留下来、传播下来。不然的话，我们就真成了宋一鸣教授说的那那些 antique dealer， 然后把东西拿过来藏在这儿，等着某年某月拿出去卖点钱。那不是，我们是希望我们能收到的就都给所有的人看。嗯嗯，谢谢。嗯嗯嗯，呀。Um, so I'm not actually aware of、uh, the use of genetic testing in the compilation of genealogies, but it's not something I particularly am watching for. So it may be happening. I'm just not aware of. But I think what I would say one thing is that is that you can flip the question around, and there is a great deal of interest in、um, uh, medical research and in, pu in public health in making use of the enormous repository of genealogical information as a way to produce medical new new medical. Uh, 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 
discoveries um, to track uh, diseases through populations. The, there are so many ways in which, in which, uh, uh, well, Chinese Chinese big data is so much bigger than than other forms of big data. But there are certainly efforts being made uh, to link medical research, uh, medical research, and uh, geneal and and genealogy uh, to produce new findings based on the 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 the, the longevity of the Chinese. Uh, Genealogical 世界提供阅读的机会 啊，这这个复杂的一件事情，就是因为要花很多很多时间，就是我们现在仅仅是刚把目录全部整理完就用了，呃，差不多两年的时间在整理目录，然后把它这个数字化的时候，呃，你因为目前刚刚才开始有就
呃，授权授权，你而他不但不授权，如果你找到他，还说你把东西还我。嗯，确实你，你你捡的，你说你我捡我捡的，问题是钱包也是我捡的，那钱包也不能我捡了就归我了，是吧？那钱包人家扔的，然后所以呢，这个是全世界的呃图书馆的一个问题。就是，除了像哈佛燕京这种级别的图书馆，是人费正清先生说，我愿意把这九十箱东西给你。那当然，我们这种民间的图书馆，没人这个生前最好说把它捐给杂书馆嘛，人家肯定愿意捐给什么那个那个 Hoover Institute 啊，什么之类的这些地方。然后，所以我们都是捡的。那个是这。<笑>应该这么说，在在这个呃孔网上的九万多个这个这个 bookstore 里面，差不多有呃呃百分之二十五以上是收破烂的，就是就真的是捡垃圾的。他们在那儿开的书摊，就是他们非常知道在哪儿能捡着这个这这些东西，在大师的就是那些院大院什么大学研究机构外面捡破烂。啊，所以这个我们会比较谨慎，就是还是提主要提供给学者，而不提供给那不是说就专辑作者啊，或者是研究那个时代，呃，不提供给公众做那种八卦的那个那个那个东西。谢谢，嗯嗯，下一位，嗯嗯嗯，呀、yeah, ，这位女士。Um, yeah, I have two questions. One for um Michael, and then for Mr. Gao Xiaosong. Um, Michael, um, very quick question. What do you think are the educational functions of genealogy? Because um, yeah, you mentioned about the state and also the private sphere, uh, and I I just wonder that because you know, private education, family education, actually is a very important uh type of education for Chinese people, particularly in the traditional uh, area. So that's for you. And also, I have a question for for Mr. Gao Xiaosong also about education. Because um, we all know that you are you are not trained as a historian, but you are doing perfect job Thank in you. history. <laughs> yes, and you are collaborating with the high uh, with the best uh, uh, center on uh, history and also uh, Chinese studies in the world. So. What, 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 and actually, you are trained as engineer, <laughs> so, 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 and then music, and then movie. So, what, what, what do you think uh, you benefit most f uh, from your educational experience in China? So, mm -hmm. Yeah, because mm -hmm. my, my, my research focuses on higher education and educational studies. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not sure whether your question is directed towards history or towards the present. Um, we know that uh, knowledge of the family was considered an important part of traditional education. That's why so many genealogies begin with the phrase "guoyoshi jiaopu." That is to say that 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 and and that and that actually is to say that the knowledge of the jia is as important as the knowledge of the guo. Much of the story of the 20th century has been to say that actually guo knowledge of the guo is important. And knowledge of the Jia is not, uh, but certainly uh, historically, uh, uh, Japu were were central to d domestic education. Um, I'm not really sure uh, if your question was was more about the contemporary situation. Um, I, uh, I I don't really think that um, the the uh, I don't think that that genealogy plays an obvious educational role at at present. Um, but I suppose it depends on the direction that uh, genealogy takes. The traditional 
um, paragons of female virtue that are recorded in genealogies, I don't think probably have much to tell young women in China today. But uh, if the next generation of genealogies records the accomplishments in education, the accomplishments in, in business and in commerce and in government of young women, maybe, maybe uh, the next generation of, of, of young girls will again look to the genealogy for uh, models, models of behavior. And that really depends on the, 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 what, what Chinese people do with their genealogy, which I don't know what, what they're, I don't know what's next. Well, it's, uh, it's another side of uh, family uh, education because uh, my family's like, or you probably know, it's like they're all like professors or PhD, and they, they <laughs> everybody want you know train me like like a, a elite, like intellectual or something like that. So in China, this kind of family will train you uh, at least five things. History, that's the must. You have to know the history of the country and the history of the city, the history of your family and the world. And qin qi shu hua. Yeah, you go back to uh, kind of like Han or Tang, they call it liu yi. You have to learn liu yi. Now qin qi shu hua history. So what I'm doing now is just monetize everything my family trained me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, we can take one more uh, question. So, yes. Uh, I think the first question would be asked uh, to Mr. Gaoxiao. So I'm just wondering when the Zhao Library digitizes uh, your collections, or it's like you will add punctuation like by yourself or just unpunctuated? Well, we have He Fu Guanzhang. <laughs> uh, well, actually, uh, he's the. Uh, I'm like more like uh, the Ji uh, Xiang <laughs> Wu, and yeah, I'm like uh, you know chief marketing officer of that the whole thing. So I'm doing like running around promote Zha uh, Shu Guan and to Harvard to all those kind of uh, scholars and uh, to the society. And that, that's my job. Of course, uh, I have some point of view from, you know, but I, I put most of my point of view into my Xiao Shu Guan. My library is in, in Hangzhou, in Nanjing, in Beijing. That, that's my uh, collection. I think the second half of my question would be uh, for uh, scholarly usage. Who's like for scholar whose native uh, language is, is now Chinese? It's like, will you prefer like the punctuated primary source or unpunctuated? Be because professors only know how much time we spend, how much extra time we spend on the unpunctuated version, and how much, how many problems were caused, like generated from the punctuated version of primary source. He, he, know, he knows what I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would 
prefer to stick with unpunctuated. Um, I've worked with sources where the punctuation is very clearly wrong, and it has thrown me off so often. Um, I was laughing a little bit because I've been working with my grad students on um, Mingqing print practices, and we've been talking a bit about like when were punctuated editions produced versus non-punctuated editions, and of course the mark of elite scholarship is to be able to read the non-punctuated edition, so to say, um, just sort of imagining late Ming and early Qing literati turning over in their graves as we add the punctuation back in for mass dissemination in the present day. Uh, but Riley, please go ahead. I, I guess to offer a perspective, um, looking at more, I guess, the past 30 or 40 years, um, punctuation offers a lot of opportunity for creativity and a lot of opportunity for messages to be read in a variety of ways. Um, and certainly there are plenty of Chinese authors, um, I guess you'll see in newspapers sometimes, or even on Weixin, people will write something that has a paragraph or a, a period at the end, but if you read it vertically, it means something entirely different. Diagonally, something entirely different. I mean, this is something we see continuously mm -hmm. over Chinese history. So. Punctuation is just another opportunity for thinking, right? Okay. I'll, I'll just say one quick word, which is that, which is that I, in, as Yang Yunhui knows, in my class, I sometimes give students the option, and Yunhui always chooses the unpunctuated text. And uh, <laughs> so when you're looking to hire a punctuator, that's really high. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Uh, I do want to uh, remind the audience we have a reception upstairs, and also the wonderful um, treasured items from the Zashu uh, Guan from Harvard Yanjing Library. So we invite everybody to uh, go up and join us and uh, uh, continue to talk. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Oh,